Hello everyone, it's Sarah Edwards here, one of the social media editors for the EMJ and welcome to May 2022's podcast of the month, taking you through all the papers. I'm joined by my colleague. Hi, I'm Rick Boddy. I'm deputy editor at the Emergency Medicine Journal. And um, between the both of us, we're going to take you through May 2022. It's a very themed episode. We've got a bit on car- quite a lot on cardiac arrest this month, a bit about machine learning and then something to wrap us up with COVID-19. So I'm going to start with some of the first cardiac arrest papers, then it's going to be Rick, and then we'll we'll alternate between the, all of us. So the first paper we're going to talk about is the assessment of emergency physicians' performance in identifying shockable rhythms in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And this was an observational study done by uh, Dakeen et al., and is a really interesting study just looking to understand using uh, French emergency physicians about how quick they respond to shockable, non-shockable rhythms um, in relation to on a, man- on a manual defibrillator in relation to, you know, are they quicker or better than an, on an automatic defibrillator? So essentially, they had 215 people that did this and they did this with an online study um, and what they found was actually, you know, as physicians, we're pretty sensitive and specific at identifying the shockable rhythms. We're as good as the computers. The median sensitivity for shock delivery for the shockable rhythm was 0.91, with the median uh, for non-shock delivery of a non-shockable rhythm was 0.19. So that's pretty good. And then um, it got a little bit less specific and sensitive around PEA bringing that down to sort of around the 0.83 specificity for that. And interestingly, they asked all these physicians as well, do they prefer to use AEDs or do they prefer to use the manual defibrillators? And 57% felt that they prefer to use the manual uh, defibrillator, which I thought was interesting. So the bottom line really is that actually we're pretty good, like the AED, at um, identifying the shockable rhythm, so the VF, the VTs. We're less good with the PEAs, which inherently are quite tricky rhythms to identify at times, and we're okay with the asystoles. Um, and interestingly, our French counterparts feel that they prefer to do cardiac arrests out of hospital with a manual defibrillator. I was just wondering what you thought about that, Rick. Yeah, so I think it's uh, really interesting. I personally don't like the automated function either, I have to say, because what I don't like is the way that it talks to you so much at the beginning and it interrupts your flow as team leader. So it feels like it slows you down, even if it actually, you know, the data says that it's recognising the rhythm earlier. Those interruptions feel like it slows you down. So it's heartening to know that uh, emergency physicians were accurate enough. And the delays, the differences um, and time to interpretation were pretty short in the grand scheme of things, not likely to make a difference to the patient outcome. No, that's very true. And I think like you, I prefer doing it, you know, uh, manually, um, because I find that bit where it's analysing the rhythm agonisingly painfully slow. I don't know whether you've heard, heard it go and I'm just like, oh, goodness me, gosh, that feels like a long time. I probably could have made the decision. So, yeah, so I think it's a really interesting paper that actually has shown some of the evidence that's out there and, and, and some more evidence. And, it, and it's good to know that we're probably as good as the computers. So that's really good. You've got the next couple of papers, uh, Rick. So I'll let you uh, introduce those. 
Yeah, these are a little bit, you know, ER. If you remember ER, the uh, drama from yeah. that I grew up watching with Mark Green and uh, role models like that um, that inspired me to do emergency medicine. Uh, this is about 100 versus 200 CPR. So it sounds like the sort of thing that they'd do in ER with, uh, with 100 CPR. But they're actually, it's actually quite a good question. We've got two papers comparing 100 CPR to 200 CPR. It might seem ridiculous that we'd ever consider doing 100 CPR, However, in the pre-hospital field in particular, there are many situations where you, you might need to do that or you might feel you need to do that. For example, if you're the lone rescuer um, and you're, the, you're in charge of the resuscitation attempt, you might only have one hand free. And one of the papers looked at whether it, the impact of doing 100 CPR while you were on the phone to the EMS which is quite interesting. So I'll tell you about the papers. First of all, we've got one from Taiwan. And this one is a randomized crossover study. In fact, they both were. So they recruited um, emergency medical technicians working in the pre-hospital field. And it was a simulation study. So they got a resource and a mannequin, which has that QCPR technology that I think many of us will be familiar with. It can measure the depth of your compressions, the rate, et cetera, and tell you how good you are. What they did is they performed two minutes of CPR twice, but they randomized the order. So the first, the first um, group would be um, 100 CPR. The second group would be 200 CPR, but they changed the order randomly between the, the EMTs. What they found is that there was no real difference in the rate when you used 100 CPR or 200 CPR, and you'd kind of expect that. However, the depth of compressions was much less when one hand was used. In fact, the EMTs managed to get 82% accuracy for their depth when they used two hands, but they only got 11% accuracy when they used one hand. They also had less recoil in that group as well. So it's clear evidence that the quality of compressions is lower when you're using one-handed CPR. Therefore, on the basis of that study, we'd say there's not really a good rationale for advocating for 100 CPR. Really, we're better to give it good 200 compressions and make sure that the patient's getting good quality resuscitation. Following on from that, we've got the second uh, randomized crossover study. This one's from Korea. And in this one, they're looking at whether there might be a role for doing 100 CPR while you call the emergency medical services or just wait until you've called the services and then start 200 CPR. For this, they got 108 university students and they used three-minute groups. So they, they, they um, randomized the order again. The first group made the phone call to EMS in a sim lab and then started their 200 compressions. The second group did 100 compressions while calling EMS with a smartphone on the other hand. Now, they also found that there was less compression depth in the modified group where they used 100 CPR. So the two studies that we've looked at are both consistent on that. The quality of CPR isn't as good. However, in the group that was doing 100 CPR while calling, there was a shorter lag time to completing compressions. More compressions overall were delivered in the time that they studied and more compressions with adequate depth were delivered over the time that they studied. So this is actually evidence to suggest that if you're the uh, first responder, you're giving the first aid to that patient and starting CPR, actually this suggests that although the quality of your CPR might not be as good with one hand, you'd be better off doing one-handed CPR and calling EMS. One question they didn't answer though, 
is whether we should use hands-free on the smartphone and do 200 compressions, because I think you could do that as well. So if you haven't got hands-free and you're going to use one hand for your mobile phone to call 999, then 100 compressions is better than nothing. Uh, however, maybe we could use hands-free and get 200 compressions and, and increase the quality. What do you think, Sarah? Oh, gosh, the possibility is endless. You know, you could have Bluetooth headsets, you could have, you know, AirPods, whatever. You know, there's lots of options. I think it's it's really interesting about the um, one-handed versus the two-handed and actually that, that there is quite a difference by the sounds of it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's just you know, doing the best in in difficult circumstances in out of hospital, I think is the thing. So if there really is only one of you, one-handed CPRs or two-handed CPR with a loudspeaker, you know, you've got to just do the best you've got. But I think it's really interesting that probably there needs to be a lot more work about this because there are some phenomenal rural settings in the world where, you know, this could be the difference between life or death. Yeah, completely agree. So the moral of the story is do the best you can with what you've got. And if one-handed CPR while you're calling 999 is the best you can do, then do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think I've got the next paper, which is on a cardiac arrest theme again. We're carrying on. And this is, um, again, with our French colleagues, looking at the impact of puberty as a threshold to differentiate outcome of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And I think what's quite interesting about this paper is so they've taken it's a French cardiac arrest database. And rather than classically, what we'll find in the literature is that you've got children. So anything from zero all the way up to usually 16 or 18. And then you've got adults above. What they've tried to do using sort of puberty guidelines is they've tried to break those down in, in, in those ages. So they've done children, you know, sort of zero to four. And then they've got an adolescent sort of group, so the, the group that are sort of hitting puberty. And then you've got adults, you know, sort of above puberty. And I think why this is really interesting is because actually each of those groups has different issues when it comes to cardiac arrest. So in this uh, French National Cardiac Arrest Registry, over five years from 2012 to 2017, they found nearly 27,000 adults 934 children and 433 adolescents. Not surprising in children. So these are the sort of the pre-pubertal, so sort of less than eight years old. Respiratory etiology was the most common cause and shockable rhythms were less common in that age group. And as sort of you moved into the adolescent period, that morphed into, you know, more cardiac or traumatic causes of cardiac arrests. Some of the interesting points to pick out from this paper, and it really is worth a read because I think it's getting your head around, you know, what you're predicting with these sort of different age groups and getting your heads around that. The location is always interesting. So not surprising, you know, younger children, more often than not, this happened in home. Your cardiac arrests happened in home. Um, and as the ages got adolescence, interestingly, mostly in this particular cohort was happening in public, so out on public roads, out in public places. And then when you get to adults again, you know, it's sort of under the sort of 65s, you know, home and then, you know, smattering across, you know, public places and public roads. What's really interesting about the children versus the adolescents, though, is sort of their morphology of what's causing the cardiac arrest. So in children, so those sort of less than eight, those pre-pubertal, the respiratory arrests were quite common. Moving on into adolescence, actually traumatic started to becoming more common. So thinking things around suicide, really, 
but also not only traumatic around sort of suicide, but also being out on roads, um, out in parks, that sort of thing. And then into adolescence, it's, you know, it's a, it's a more general spread. What was interesting about this particular group as well was actually all groups predominantly were male. So in the children, you know, all of these are cardiac arrest, 60% were male. Adolescents had 65% of them being male. And then adults, 75% of these patients in this group were male. So I don't know quite what's going on. And I think the bottom line about this paper, although it's an observational study and it's a retrospective review and it's going back through the paper, I think what's really useful is just to delineate between the differences between children and adolescents where the etiologies are often quite different. And I think as an emergency physician, I think it's just to get our head around about what are we more likely to see in those age groups. So I know more often than not, you know, with young little ones, particularly if they're less than one, it's usually a respiratory arrest. But actually the teenagers that are coming in, it's more likely to be either traumatic or, you know, overdose type things. And then in adults, it's the full spectrum. So I'm just going to leave it there. And I'd just be interested in your thoughts, really. Really intriguing title for this one and really interesting rationale. It's got face yeah. validity, hasn't it, to kind of differentiate yeah. based on whether the patient is prepubertal or postpubertal. It's easy to recognise that visually, whereas we don't necessarily always know the age of the patient. And so this kind of approach might uh, actually make it easier in the immediate response to a, a cardiac arrest. And that's what the authors call for, isn't it? They want they suggest that they're in conclusion that um, international guidelines may, might change rather than yeah. differentiating between children and adults as a binary thing, actually introduce the concept of prepubertal and postpubertal. In their work, yeah. they have actually stratified the patients into three groups, haven't they? Children, adolescents and adults. And that, that's age-based because it is retrospective. That's not based on a visual um, no. appearance of the patient. So, you know, the conclusions are inferring a little bit from, from the data, but you can clearly see that there are differences in the etiology um, of the cardiac arrests um, between those three groups. And as you say, you know, very different causes of cardiac arrest in adolescents than the younger children. Yeah, and I think that has impact, I think, if we were to move to a puberty-based, you know, visualisation, because actually your one-year-old is a very different to a 14-year-old, and, it, you know, a 14-year-old who's often bigger than I am and bigger than you are, you know, you know, actually, how do you manage them? Because it almost seems counterintuitive to manage a cardiac arrest of a 14-year-old using the paediatric guidance versus the adult guidelines when you're lo- essentially looking at an adult-sized body an adult size shape. And I think this is where more research needs to be looked at. I mean, ultimately, I think the whole principle around managing cardiac arrest will, will be the same. But I think it's just having those those considerations, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it gets us thinking in a good way, a, a pragmatic way about how we might approach this problem. Absolutely. So a little bit different now from cardiac arrest, but still with the heart on theme. It's just a concepts paper that we've got this month that I just want to briefly touch upon before we get on to Rick and his machine learning is about extracorporeal life support. So um, ECMO, out of hospital cardiac arrest and an experience of a volleyball men's world championship final in Turin in Italy. So this is a fascinating short little paper to read. And it's a conceptual thing around um, the volleyball men's uh, final uh, in 2018 in Italy in Turin. 
um, where, you know, over the course of the five days of this massive international tournament, they were going to have 15,000, you know, around 15,000 people turning up. And, you know, within the paper, they talk about, um, you know, our, our audience will, will be aware of that, you know, sports related sudden death in the general population is apparently reported at about 4.6 cases per million per year. And essentially what they wanted to do was to look at and set up an out-of-hospital ECMO uh, centre so that if anyone had a cardiac arrest during this tournament, that they were ready for it. And actually, when you when you look at the paper, and it's well worth a look, you know, they've got detailed diagrams about, you know, how, how this was set up, where it was going to set up, what it was going to look like. And the personnel involved within this, things like cardiac uh, anaesthetists, or anesthesiologists, uh, cardiac surgeons, sports medicine physicians, and you'd have perfusionists, nurses, you'd have some volunteers, and you'd have some more more helpers. And essentially how the protocol would work in this five days if somebody had a cardiac arrest or an acute illness, they'd get evaluated, they'd recognise that this was an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, CPR would be started, and then if they get into the situation where they get refractory out of hospital cardiac arrest, they would go down the for ECMO, not for ECMO, and then they'd have this whole ECMO centre. So um, they set it all up. And despite them setting it all up, and they actually did it during this tournament, fortunately, or unfortunately, I suppose for them, there was no instances of cardiac arrest, despite this huge number of people turning up for the tournament. But really interesting concept, really great to have a look at that. And hopefully, you know, as more information about ECMO in the out-of-hospital arena comes out, it'll be interesting reading. I don't know what you thought about it, Rick. Very interesting concept and very high profile. You know, the uh, sudden cardiac death in elite uh, athletes gets a lot of coverage and um, it makes perfect sense that, you know, these are patients who would be prime candidates for ECMO. We're going to recognise the cardiac arrest very, very early. So being prepared to offer them ECMO in that environment seems, you know, very, very wise. The big question is, is it worth the cost? Because it sounds quite expensive. Um, so how much would we have to pay to actually get any value out of this? And that's that's going to be the biggest question, I think, for health services. As you say, there are no cardiac arrests at this particular event. Would that be the same during, you know, bigger events like the Olympics or the Football World Cup, for example, uh, where you've got big, big crowds. You might have cardiac arrests in the crowd. You might have cardiac arrests among the athletes. Yeah, it'll be interesting. But it's, I found this a very, very interesting paper to get us thinking about it once again, just to, just to sort of start the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And phenomenal. They managed to pull it off. Anyway, uh, let's move on to some machine learning. And I'll let you take the lead here. Yeah, so I've got an interest in this area. We do uh, some machine learning. I developed the TMAX Decision Aid, which is uh, derived by logistic regression. And we've done plenty of other things in this space. I've been involved in the field for quite a good number of years, actually. I started in my PhD looking at the work that Ian Steele had been doing in Ottawa, where he'd been developing decision rules like the Ottawa Ankle Rule, I think we're all familiar with those. They're you know, simple decision trees. They're very, very easy to use, uh, have great face validity and really help us to avoid unnecessary x-rays for patients. And there are loads of decision rules like that. We use them for head injuries all the time. The Canadian CT head rule is part of the NICE guidelines. The techniques that we use to develop decision rules, though, are getting more and more sophisticated. 
And that's what this is about, essentially. It's about using more advanced machine learning techniques to improve the standard of the prediction models that we might use in our practice. Now, there's been an awful lot of hype about using artificial intelligence and machine learning in clinical medicine. I guess one of the challenges is to see if that can actually lead to material benefits in our practice. So in this issue of the journal, we've got three papers that touch on this. First of all, we've got a really, really nice practice review by Shami Ramlikan from Sheffield. And he takes us through what this is all about, all of the principles. He talks about what is AI, what is machine learning, what are the different techniques? How, do we, how might we apply it in practice? How might we ensure that it lives up to the hype? Could it be predicting waiting times, spotting fractures, recognizing severe sepsis earlier than we otherwise might, or predicting outcomes from diseases or infections like COVID-19? All of those things show lots of promise. Uh, In this article, I think it's really important for emergency physicians to be aware of this because it's going to be a growing field. We're going to see more and more evidence coming out looking at machine learning. So it would be prudent for us all to be familiar with the basic techniques and the terms. So have a read of Shami's article. He takes us through things like uh, what does a training set mean? What's underfitting, overfitting? What's a random forest? And he explains them all very, very nicely. And he does also touch on this issue of whether it's overhyped because systematic reviews have shown that um well there aren't that many evidence uh, many examples of uh, successful implementation however shami's pointed out that in those systematic reviews the techniques that have been used haven't had maybe the the, the highest methodological standards and um, perhaps as we get more familiar with these techniques we get better at them we get more sophisticated we use them in an exemplary way, these machine learning technologies will start to impact on our clinical practice. And that's likely to happen in the next few years. So moving on from that nice review by Shami, we've got two articles that put that into practice, essentially. First of all, we've got a machine learning model to predict waiting times. So this is uh, really nice. It's from Australia, where they looked at 12 emergency departments using three years of retrospective data with 1.9 million patient episodes. The study was led by Katie Walker, and they used a number of different techniques with this huge, huge data set to see if they could find prediction models that are going to predict the waiting time for patients when they arrive in the ED pretty well. We all know that patients want to know how long they're going to wait. I don't know what it's like where you work, but uh, in Manchester, they're all, patients are always coming to the desk and saying, how much longer do I have to wait? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the bane of our lives, right? So it would be nice if we could <laughs> automate this process and, and tell patients how long they're likely to wait. It's got that potential. Uh, also, you know, it, this could be applied on an individual level rather than just putting up a sign in a waiting room saying waiting time three hours. You can have a look at the, 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 how long an individual patient is likely to be waiting, which is quite helpful. So they used a number of techniques, including random forest and linear regression, and those two were actually the best methods for deriving the models. And they found a number of things that were important, the triage category, the waiting time for the last four patients, the time of arrival, uh, and there are a number of other variables as well. They derived and validated a model that can help to predict waiting time within about, well, they say the range is within 23 to 44 minutes. So you get a fairly accurate idea of the waiting time. So really interesting concept. 
we could maybe think about you know whether that might be used uh, in practice. It did seem to work best if you keep the model specific to your hospital rather than making it more general. So you probably need to have a model for your own hospital so you customize it. So that sort of ups, you know, and we'd need to up our game in terms of sophistication of the technology. Do you think that's something you would use in practice, Sarah? Well, I think it would really help the receptionists at the front of uh, uh, ED who are continually being asked. I think, you know, taking a step back from the patient's point of view, when I've been a patient in the emergency department, which thankfully hasn't happened too frequently, I think the thing that I think worries people is that not knowing what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and you know, people then get anxious over time. So I think it could be twofold. If we can accurately predict within sort of, you know, 20 to 40 minutes, most people can live with that. And obviously people know that, you know, life changes and patients change and things may change that time. But it gives people something to hold on to rather than as it currently happens, they come in, they sit down and they could be waiting an eternity or what feels like an eternity. And when you're sick, that's a huge amount more. The other thing I wonder about is actually if we can get the waiting time down, you know, realistically, and people are actually told, well, actually, genuinely, at the moment, the wait time is four and a half hours to be seen. And with, you know, thinking about trying to not necessarily divert people away from the emergency department, but point them into other resources, it may help people see that visual reminder that actually, and reevaluate whether what they've come with today is is for us, or it could be done somewhere else. And that, that I think, could be also very helpful. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, it could be. And the, the other thing is, I mean, like you say, just managing that anxiety and managing patient expectations. Many people, I think, are really, really worried about wait, leaving the, the waiting room in case they miss their turn. And, you know, we keep wait, patients waiting for quite a long, large number of hours these days on occasions because of the, the problem that we have with crowding. Uh, if people had an idea that, you know, they're not going to be seen for a little while, um, they might be able to, you know, get get a drink or get something to eat when it's appropriate to do so. You know, you know, just switch off, zone out, not pay so much attention. I think it'd be, it could be very good for patients. So let's move on to the next one. Now, last month we had a look at a paper from Karl Marinkovitz and and his colleagues. They validated the Hull-Salford-Cambridge decision rule for traumatic brain injury. They were looking to find a decision rule that would help us to decide which patients need observation in the hospital so these were patients who had some abnormality on their ct scan but it's not immediately neurosurgically significant maybe there's contusions maybe there's a very small bleed and they derived the whole self cambridge decision rule to try and identify those patients who might go on to deteriorate and therefore would need further inpatient observation now they validated that we covered it last month and we showed that it we we explained how it was very sensitive but not very specific so in fact still the vast majority of patients would need to be admitted to hospital. In this issue, the authors have used sophisticated machine learning techniques to try and improve this model. So they'd originally derived it by logistic regression, which is a very conventional method for deriving decision rules. This time, they used gradient-boosted decision tree models, which sounds extremely funky. They used ensembling, where they use numerous slightly different models that they've created using the data set, and then they average the results or maybe vote on the results. They've used boosting, where the algorithm successfully focuses on observations where the outcome is increasingly difficult to predict. And they used um, cat boost, where they recode categorical variables as numeric. This is all extremely funky stuff. 
<laughs> uh, now, to understand any of that, you'll need to read Shami's review, of course, because he covers a lot of that. But what's the bottom line on this? Did these funky techniques lead to a better decision rule that would reduce the need to observe patients in the hospital and do it safely? And the answer is no. <laughs> so the sensitivity of the decision rule that they derived using all of these funky models was excellent. It was 99%, but the specificity is still really low at 7%. Negative predictive value, 94%. So the bottom line is, these techniques were, you know, fantastic, a great exploration of how you could use funky machine learning techniques. But unfortunately, it didn't lead to anything that we can use to improve patient care. Logistic regression did just as well. Wow. That's almost disappointing, given all those amazing terms that you just used. Yep. Um, it probably doesn't help with this overhyping issue, does it? So <laughs> machine learning still needs to prove itself, but I'm sure it will. Absolutely. And just moving away from machine learning back to the reality of uh, medicine within in the world, actually, um, we've got two uh, papers on COVID-19. The first one is the one that I was going to talk about is a case control study multi-centred of consecutive patients with COVID-19 looking at acute myopericarditis incidence, risk factors, clinical characteristics and outcomes. And that was done by um, Miro or Miro et al. And this has been done in Spain. And what's really important about this paper is that they've looked at between the 1st of March to the 30th of April 2020. So that's way back right at the beginning at every COVID patient that had come through the department. And they wanted to ascertain the incidence of um, acute myopericarditis. And they managed to collect the data from 152 Spanish emergency departments, which is a phenomenal task in the middle of, you know, a global pandemic and everything else that's going on. So they had during this time in these 152 patients. So over that two month period, there were 74,814 COVID patients versus 1,388,000 and a few non-COVID patients. And essentially what they wanted to do was look at the COVID patients versus the non-COVID patients look at the incidence of myopericarditis, and then they would case match each of these. So out of this, the incidence of these nearly 75,000 COVID patients, there was less than 1% incidence of acute myopericarditis. And it worked out at only 67 patients out of that nearly 75,000 patients. What they found was, and they compared the myocarditis, they then looked at the non-COVID patients and looked at the incidence of the myocard, acute uh, myopericarditis of those and case matched them as well. And what they found was that in COVID-19 acute pericarditis, typically they presented with less uh, chest pain versus those that didn't have COVID. They typically had less ECG changes and they had um, higher BNP. They also found in the COVID acute myopericarditis that they had greater left versus right ventricular dysfunction in on echo. And those patients also invariably went on to need um, greater inotropic support in intensive care or high dependency, which was very different to those classical acute myopericarditis patients that they had that were case matched who, you know, had the typical features that we would be more accustomed to, so chest pain and things like that. 
And I think, you know, I think that's really interesting to be aware of. And the bottom line really here as emergency physicians is to think about, well, actually, you know, COVID um, myopericarditis or acute myopericarditis is something I've seen quite a lot. I don't know. I'll um, be interested to hear what Rick says. And it's just bearing in mind just, you know, actually that it's going to present in a slightly different way to what, you know, we're typically taught. What's interesting, of course, is this is way back right at the beginning of the pandemic. We're now two years down the line. So it would be interesting to know, A, what the incidence is now and B, actually, what more our understanding would be. I don't know what you think, Rick. Yeah, I agree. So during wave one of the pandemic, I remember seeing at least three. There were definitely three in in quick succession, patients with pericarditis and no other evidence of COVID-19. However, I really strongly suspected that they had COVID-19. It was before we had the opportunity to, to actually swab them, before they went home. You know, they, they couldn't have a swab in the department. They had to get that in the community. And the, um, those symptoms aren't recognised as COVID symptoms. However, I was pretty sure this is quite a coincidence. It's got to be related to COVID-19. So, I mean, looks like there's something in it. We've all also been interested in measuring troponin certainly during wave one of the pandemic a lot of people started to measure it routinely in these patients interestingly these authors uh, haven't found an association with troponin here i mean their, their diagnostic criteria for myopericarditis were any two of chest pain friction rub ecg changes or pericardial effusion so it doesn't require a troponin elevation but there was no difference between the cases and controls in terms of their troponin concentration so not really suggesting that troponin is that useful, but NT pro BMP was useful for predicting outcome in those patients, which is kind of what you'd expect because it's showing us that the, the heart is under stress. So I found this really interesting. I have to say it's an area that I think we need more published evidence on, and this helps to inform us about the nature of this condition, myopericarditis associated with COVID nineteen. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, subsequently, since that, you know, obviously, there's been interest within, you know, children getting this. um, And these were all adults, actually. Um, So, you know, it'd be great to have that published literature as well. And finally, the last paper, uh, which is a research letter that we published this coming month, is just um, looking at injury presentations during the COVID-19 pandemic in the US, say, um, and seeing seeing what's happened. And this is by uh, Nabev Izadeh. And um, essentially what they did was they looked at the early part of the first lockdown in 2020 versus the previous year in 2019. And not surprisingly, which I think we can all relate to and those that are listening, that actually the nature of injuries um, changed. Um, There were often a lot less injuries presenting during this time. Uh, But also what they found with particularly within the USA was that the injury and the body part and location was different. So notably, they found that there were more lacerations and fractures um, that increased proportionally, whereas other types of injuries declined or stayed the same. And what they found was those that with injuries, more of them often died within the ED than those previously. They also noticed that, you know, sort of motor vehicle accidents and things like that generally declined during that period as before 2019. And again, they hypothesise, and, and it's likely so, um, and other evidence has come out, you know, to suggest, you know, obviously people weren't going out, they weren't mixing, they weren't doing the normal things that they were doing. And I know within the UK, probably within the first year of 2020, most trauma and motor vehicle accidents decreased quite significantly over that time because no one went anywhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. This totally fits with my experience as well. I kind of expected to see these changes in injury patterns. So much was different during those initial waves of the pandemic. I'd like to see some data on um, drug use as well. I, yeah. We just didn't see patients coming in collapsed after drug use like we do normally. No. I don't know if that's because they didn't take them or because they we didn't find them collapsed. I don't know. Well, or we may have said, oh, this must be COVID. Who knows? <laughs> So, yeah. Anyway, everyone, uh, that's the end of our May 2022 uh, sum up of the EMJ. Thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next month. See you soon. Take care.